Well, our time in the Word tonight is uh, Bible question and answer. So that means we won't really, really be locking into one passage and just staying there. So you'll need to turn to various passages in your Bible uh, or on your tablet or smartphone or whatever you use to help you follow along wherever you have your Bible. So uh, gather that and uh, great questions as always. I always look forward to this. Gives me sort of a feel for what uh, people are wrestling through, thinking about, etc. And as always, a lot of questions, which is great. The only unfortunate part is we can't spend as much time on any one question as we'd like. So we just kind of have to hit the high points and maybe give a few passages and go from there. Uh, first question tonight is actually one that I received several times over the last several months, and I've addressed it in Q&A several times, but I'm going to address it again because it is, uh, it is so common and such a pressing question, and it is the question, are the blood moons signs? Now, some of you may or may not be aware of this and what's going on, so let me just read, actually, in a copy of Israel, My Glory that just came this week. It's a, a magazine devoted to Jewish issues, Jewish ministry, Jewish evangelism. There's an excellent article in it, just a brief one, and I'll read you part of that because I think it says it so well. He says, blood moons are a beautiful sight. These astronomical anomalies have become a hot topic for both backyard astronomers and Christians who consider them prophetic signs. Are the blood moons signs, or are they simply God's handiwork? A blood moon is a total, total lunar eclipse when Earth stands between the, mon- the moon and sun. Since Earth blocks the sun's light, the only hue that emerges through Earth's atmosphere is red, casting a blood-red color on the moon. Some Christians associate tetrads, fours of blood moons, with significant events in Jewish history and argue that something earth-shattering will happen to Israel during the current tetrad. This is why this is such a hot topic. April 2014 through September 2015. Biblical prophecy certainly speaks of a blood moon. The prophet Joel envisioned it when he prophesied about the great and awesome day of the Lord where we read, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, Joel 2, 30 and 31. Luke, actually Peter, Peter speaking, Luke quoting Peter who quoted Joel in Acts 2, 20, and the apostle John used the same prophecy in Revelation 6, 12, the moon became like blood. Each time a blood moon is mentioned, it is in conjunction with other cosmic events occurring simultaneously. So if a biblical blood moon has occurred, we should also expect to see a darkened sun and only one blood moon, not tetrads. Furthermore, each writer pointed to the same future event. Blood moon prophecy advocates argue tetrads appeared during important events in Jewish history, as the, such as the Jewish expulsions from Spain in 1492, Israel's independence in 1948, and in 67 during the Six-Day War. However, the first blood moon occurred in April 1949 after Israel had already gained its independence in May 1948. Similarly, a tetrad appeared in, in 1493, a year after the Jewish people were expelled from Spain. If the blood moons are signs, they should have occurred before those events. Wrote, and then there's a quote here, and I'll skip over that. See, he concludes this way. Placing prophetic value on these blood moons grabs our attention, but the referenced events are random. 
Some involved a serious struggle but ended in joy like Israel's independence and the Six-Day War, while others ended only in sorrow like the expulsion from Spain. Furthermore, there are important historical Jewish events such as the destruction of the two temples and the Holocaust that were unaccompanied by blood moons. Why? Here's the kicker. Because there is only one biblical blood moon and it will shine in the place of a darkened sun and burned out stars when the Lord judges this world. Until then, every blood moon is an example of God's majestic handiwork. And that says it well. And I, as I said, I've been asked this question numerous times in Q&A and often in emails over the last many months. So I'm uh, so appreciative to get the article that just says it well. All right, the next question says this. You don't need to turn to a passage, but can you give us a history or Israel's history in a synopsis uh, all the way up to the current days from back in the Old Testament? And I think I can do that just briefly, but I'm not sure what the motivation or the desire is. But uh, we begin, you could go all the way back to the call of Abraham, of course, in Genesis 12. But Israel's history as a nation, you, you could start it uh, with the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon each of whom reigned for 40 years. It was during Solomon's reign that the first temple was built. After Solomon, the kingdom divided in 931 B.C. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had no righteous kings, so God's judgment came in 722 B.C. at the hand of the Assyrians who carried away the people into captivity. The southern kingdom had a few righteous kings, so they lasted longer but continued to decline spiritually. So God's judgment came on them in 586 B.C. at the hand of the Babylonians. And this is when Jerusalem and the first temple were destroyed. The people were in captivity for 70 years. It was during that time that the synagogue came into being. When the people were released, they returned and rebuilt the temple. This is called the second temple, and it was much less grandiose than Solomon's. In fact, some of the older people in the nation who had seen Solomon's temple, it says they wept when they saw this new temple because it was nothing compared to Solomon's temple. However, Herod would later beautify it and expand all the buildings around it to make it glorious and in some ways more glorious than Solomon's temple. The Old Testament record ends shortly after the building of the temple. Then there are approximately 400 years between the Old and New Testament. These are often called the silent years, but they're not really silent. Uh, much happened during this time. Uh, the Greeks came into power, which, which gave the world the Greek language in which the New Testament was written. And then the Romans came into power, which gave the world stability and roads throughout the empire. Also, key groups arose in Judaism, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, eventually the Herodians, scribes, etc. The Septuagint was translated during this time, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. King Herod came to power during this time, and as I mentioned, he beautified and expanded the, 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 all the area around the temple by creating the Temple Mount, which still stands to this day. And by the way, please keep this clear because so many Christians don't. This was not a third temple as so many people mistakenly assume. It was still just the second temple, but it was greatly enhanced. Still the second. There have only been two temples, both destroyed. First by the Babylonians, and then this second temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. The third Gentile nation to be the rod of God's judgment on the Jews. The Assyrians for the northern kingdom, Babylonians, southern kingdom, Romans for the New Testament era. 
This resulted in the dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world, many of whom ended up in Europe and Asia and became targets of persecution, the most notable, of course, the Holocaust last century. All those attacks prompted several waves of Jewish immigration to Palestine from Russia, Eastern Europe, and finally from Nazi Germany. This led to the establishment of the Jewish state in 1948, which led to the War of Independence lasting two years. Israel came out on top, and then there was the Six-Day War in 67, which reunited Jerusalem, and then there have been many other wars and fights that continue to the present day, and that is because the Prince of Peace has not been recognized by the Jewish people, and there will not be ultimate peace there until they do. So uh, whoever asked that and whatever the details you're wanting, hopefully that gives some of the, the specifics. All right, next question says this, and we always get questions every month from little ones, youngsters, and this is from a youngster asking, was Jesus scared to die on the cross? Did Jesus not want to die on the cross? Actually, those are two questions with two different answers. Was Jesus scared to die die on the cross? There is nothing in Scripture that would indicate Jesus was scared to die on the cross. Second question, did Jesus not want to die on the cross? And the answer to that is yes, uh, or, or no, however you want to say it. No, he didn't want to die on the cross. But it wasn't so much the cross, I don't believe, so much the cross that, that uh, was, was um, so repulsive to him as much as the fact that when he was on the cross, he knew that he would be drinking the cup of God's wrath. And that's why in the garden he prayed, let this cup pass from me. And I don't personally believe that Jesus was praying not to die. He knew he had come to die. I believe he was praying and saying, Father, if there's any way we can accomplish redemption through my death, but not having to drink the cup of your wrath, can we do it another way? But there was no other way. Jesus had to experience the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. So for the young gal that asked the question, was Jesus scared? Not scared. Did Jesus not want to die on the cross? He did not want to drink the cup of God's wrath and be alienated from his father and have his relationship changed from father-son to judge and guilty sinner. That's what he loathed. All right, next question is out of Romans 7. So let's turn there to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And the question is uh, actually uh, a few parts to it. So let me just read the question while you're turning there. It says uh, in Romans 7, 9 to 11, we'll read the verses in just a second. What does Paul mean that he was alive without the law? This doesn't sound like being dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. And in what way did he, did he die? Obviously not physically, but I thought he was uh, <clears throat> uh, born dead already spiritually. And what does it mean when the commandment came? God gave the law 1,500 years ago by Paul's day. So what did he mean by the commandment coming or when the commandment came? Does this passage refer to what you talked about this morning with Paul coming to the point of accountability before God's law? Uh, All great questions wrestling with Romans 7. Well, I would say this. The way you interpret verses 9 through 11 will depend on your view of Romans 7. So in a sense, there's a sense in which you can't just jump in and and try to jump into the middle of this chapter and and unpack 7 through or 9 through 11, which you ask about, unless you back up and try to determine in your thinking what is the role of Romans 7 because the, the views on Romans 7 are not unified. 
There are some that believe that this was Paul uh, before he was a Christian. Others who believe this was Paul as a Christian. Others believe it was Paul as he was becoming a Christian. Right at the moment when everything came together in his heart and mind. So you have to wrestle through that question uh, in the flow of Romans. It is my view that Romans 7 is in the section of Romans that deals with sanctification. Chapters 1 through 3, condemnation, 4 and 5, justification, 6, 1 through 8, 17, sanctification, 8, 18 through 8, 39, glorification. And for that reason, I take Romans 7 as Paul's description of living the Christian life and the battle of the Christian life in sanctification. Now again, if you have a different view, it's going gonna, it's gonna to then affect your view of these verses. So what does Paul say here in verse 9? I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. What is Paul saying here? I believe he is saying this. And I'll just summarize and then kind of go back through the verses a little bit, uh, just only a little bit because of time's sake. But I believe that Paul is saying that he was alive to God by virtue of regeneration, but when he began seeking to live the Christian life by the law, it killed him. It crushed him. It began snuffing out his life. And I believe that's what Paul is dealing with here in Romans 7, and is that is the misguided notion that salvation is by, or justification is by grace through faith, but sanctification is by works of the law. And I think Paul is trying to stress that justification is not by the law, and sanctification is not by the law. That's an important point to emphasize because it is a fact that there are many Christians who come to faith in Christ, and they understand you can only be saved by grace through faith, but once they get saved, they think you live the Christian life by the law. And I think Paul is describing what happened when he tried to live the Christian life by the law. So he says in verse 9, but sin taking opportunity by the command, or no, verse 9, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And I think what Paul is saying here is that when he came to understand the true meaning of the law and the spirit of the law, he realized the depth of sin in his own heart. He wasn't conscious of all this before. The, 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 to use an expression, the board looked straight until it was examined by the level of God's law. You see, we all have a pretty good opinion of ourselves when we compare ourselves with others. Even as Christians, we can very easily lapse into that. But when the law of God searches our hearts and minds, it shines the light of God's holiness on us and shows us just how sinful we really are. For example, when Isaiah saw the thrice holy God in, in Isaiah in chapter 6, you remember his immediate response, Woe is me. I am a sinful man. Judgment upon me. And he said that as a believer a believer who was a prophet of God. But all of a sudden, in a new way, he saw his sinfulness. When he saw himself in light of God's pristine holiness, it crushed him. And in a similar way, when the law of God uncovers our sinfulness, it crushes us, which is what God wants. Why? That sounds strange. Sounds cruel, but it's not. Look at verse 10. The next verse, he says, And the commandment, which was to bring life, 
I found to bring death. Now, it's obvious he's not saying that the commandment was intended to bring eternal life because even in the Old Testament, God made it clear you, eternal life can't be gained by the law. So that's not what Paul is talking about. So he must be talking about something else. The commandment which was to bring life, not salvation, eternal life, but it was to give me life and light to know how to live. That's why God gave the law, by the way. He gave it to a redeemed people, people redeemed out of Egypt. This is the way, walk in it. This is the way you should live. But here Paul is saying the commandments were given to show people how to live, but they actually produce death because of the sin in our human hearts. He is saying that the sin in our hearts is when we're exposed to the law of God, it does something, it begins to do something to us. Now you, you can understand this. I mean, just think about a silly illustration. What is the tendency in your own heart and life when you walk by a park bench that's glowing, kind of glistening, and it says, wet paint, do not touch? Right? What do, you, what do most people do? It's crazy. They reach out and touch it. Why? This is just the natural reaction. We're told what not to do, and the natural, now, now this is even on a sinful level. When we're told this is what to do, our tendency is to want to do the opposite. Or this is what not to do, we, we tend to, oh, I'm going to try that. I'm going to do that. And, and, and Paul is saying here, I was alive, but when I began to seek to live the Christian life by the law, it killed me. By the way, the phrase without the law or apart from the law in verse 9 is the exact same phrase that appears in chapter 3, verse 21, to refer to justification. So again, I believe Paul is saying he was alive to God by virtue of regeneration, justification, but when he began seeking to live the Christian life by the law, it crushed him. And by the way, many believers have experienced the same thing down through the centuries. They've tried to live the Christian life by the law, and it's, it's totally devastating. It doesn't work. And God uses it to bring us to the end of all our hopes in ourselves and in our flesh. The more the light of God's law shines into our depraved hearts, the more the enmity in our minds is aroused to opposition, proving that the mind of the flesh is not subject to the law of God. And that's exactly what God wants to happen to bring us to the end of ourselves, even in sanctification. You see, we all understand, we, we all understand that often in justification, we have to be brought to the end of ourselves, right? Before we will just cast ourselves on the mercy of God and understand we can't save ourselves. Well, beloved, the same thing's true in sanctification. We need to be brought to the end of ourselves in sanctification too to realize that we can't sanctify ourselves. He has to bring us to the end of ourselves and the law of God accomplishes that in both cases in relation to justification and sanctification. And so he says in verse 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment, how does sin take occasion by the commandment? Well, it just sort of lays low until the commandment brings it out in the open. Paul said earlier, I would not have even known sin had the law said you shall not covet. I would have thought I was okay, but all of a sudden I give this law, you shall not covet, and I realize I'm not as good as I thought I was. Yeah, I wasn't doing a lot of stuff, but in my heart I was coveting. The law exposed me. The law brought me to the end of myself. So how does it kill its victims? It kills its victims, sin does, by holding us and bringing us under the condemnation of the law of God. But Paul makes it clear throughout this chapter the problem is not the law of God. The problem is with us. So all that to say, in answer to your question, I believe that's what Paul is referring to here in those verses 7, 9 through 11. All right, next question says this, Pastor Brian, do babies stay babies in heaven? When we die, whatever age that is, do we remain that age in heaven? We are not told specifically the answer to this question, but I think we are given a hint. 
Because in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul describes our resurrected, glorified bodies, he says that they will be like the glorified, resurrected body of Jesus. Now, obviously, he's talking about the fact that our bodies will be immortal and incorruptible. But at least by implication, if you, you know, a a baby at six months goes to be with the Lord in heaven, it's doubtful it's going to be six months old in eternity. The body that that infant would have would be like Christ's glorified body, that is, a mature body. But only a mature body and not like a, you know, 110-year-old body, right? So, uh, That, I believe, is the hint or the indication of 1 Corinthians 15. All right, next question says this. You can turn to 1 Corinthians 14 uh, for this. 1 Corinthians 14. The question is this. Can you please explain how you understand the New Testament gift of prophecy and its role in the local church? I'll try to do it briefly because this is a this is a very big subject, uh, worthy of one, two, three messages on the topic. But let me see if I can summarize. First of all, when you study the gift of prophecy in the New Testament era, it's very important that you are careful and exact because because most people assume wrongly that the gift of prophecy every time it's mentioned is talking about something predictive. That's just what's in our minds. The gift of prophecy. Oh, the ability to predict the future. You might find it interesting to know that there are only two occasions in the entire book of Acts where the gift of prophecy was used by someone to predict the future. Only two in 30 years of recorded church history. Only two. So don't assume when you read, especially here in 1 Corinthians, about the gift of prophecy, that it is automatically talking about direct revelation from God and being able to predict the future. That's not the case. For example, in 1 Corinthians 14.3, when Paul is contrasting the gift of uh, languages and prophecy, he says, verse 3, but he who prophesies, now notice the lack of, the lack of miraculous nature of this, for, la- for lack of a better way to say it. Look, look at this. For he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. That's a description of one of the primary purposes of the gift of prophecy, which brings up another point. The term prophecy or prophesying is used in the test, in New Testament not merely and not even primarily to refer to receiving direct revelation. It's not primarily referring to receiving direct revelation or predicting the future. It is used many times just to describe proclaiming the word of God. We have a different term. We don't use the term prophesying. It's for that. We use the term preaching. But the two, there are many passages where you could see that they could be equated. So, in answer to your question, can you please uh, explain how you understand the New Testament gift of prophecy? Yes, I would say this. The miraculous aspect of that, I believe, along with the sign gifts, have passed off the scene. Because Jude 3 talks about the faith which has been once for all delivered to the saints. That is, the faith has been delivered. We have the word of God. There is no need for the, the revelatory aspect of the gift of prophecy. We don't need any new revelation. We don't need any new information. 2 Timothy 3 says that, that Scripture is sufficient to, to make the man of God all that God wants him to be. And, of course, the book of Revelation closes by warning, don't add, add anything else to this book. And if you add anything else to Scripture, if you're getting new revelation, then you ought to add it to Scripture. And if you're adding it to Scripture, you're adding it to the book of Revelation, and you come under that curse. 
So I believe the, the miraculous aspect of prophecy, the revelatory, had ceased with the close of the canon. But the non-miraculous aspect of prophecy, that is, proclaiming the Word of God, has a primary role in the local church. And in fact, here in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says that that gift, the church should desire that gift to be exercised way more than the gift of languages. Because the gift of proclamation or prophesying or preaching edifies the church. So it's one of the primary uh, roles or gifts in the, the local church today, but not the revelatory, miraculous aspect that ceased with the apostolic age. All right, next question is based on uh, Revelation 13. So turn over to Revelation chapter 13. And here in Revelation 13, we have a description of two beasts of the end times. We know them more commonly as as the Antichrist and the false prophet, and uh, talks about the world marveling and being amazed at the beast. And in verse 5, he was given a mouth speaking great things, and he opened his mouth, verse 6, in blasphemy against God, and and it was granted him to overcome the saints. And verse uh, 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, etc., and people being in awe. And the person who's writing this says this, I'm trying to bring things together in my mind, so hopefully I'm not confusing things. Here's the question. Is it possible that there will be a considerable loss of technology in the end times or a remembrance of technology because of the image in Revelation 13? It does not seem like it would seem as uh, all that miraculous with artificial intelligence and uh, animatronics and other tech that is on the edge of discovery. With that thought in, so he's saying, you know, you read this and it's like, well, if that, if, you know, artificial intelligence and animatronics comes into being and, you know, this, this false prophet is able to give the beast ability to speak, that people say, well, that's no big deal. They're not going to be in awe. So maybe there's going to be a loss of technology or loss of remembrance of technology in the end times. Well, that's one way to see it, but I would rather see it the other way and to say, no, actually what this, this beast and false prophet are able to do is so amazing that even in the face of artificial intelligence and in the face of animatronics, it will be a marvel. And all the world will marvel. So I don't think you have to sort of dumb down the, the, the population to somehow make Revelation 13 uh, work or make it seem to be something that's going to be amazing. He goes on to say, with that thought in mind, is it wrong to try to deduce, given that what seems to be going on with Russia and Iran, that the rapture could be near? I know we look for it happening, but is it wrong to try and figure it out? Well, it's not wrong to study Scripture. It's certainly not wrong to be aware of what's going on in the world. Jesus rebuked the people uh, in his day. He says, you know, you can read the signs and the times, but you don't know the Scripture. So you need to know both the signs of the times and the Scripture. But in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus does rebuke through his preaching and what's recorded by Matthew, those who will be living in the end times that they don't recognize the signs of the times. So all all that to say, no, it's not wrong to keep your eyes and ears open about what's happening in the world today and also to continue studying Scripture. But really, there's a sense in which all that's right and appropriate, but there's a sense in which it doesn't matter. And the reason why I say that is because of one verse, Titus 2.13, which says we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the Antichrist, beloved. We're looking for the true Christ. 
So you don't have to try to figure out, is the Antichrist in the world today? Is he coming out of Europe, coming out of Russia, coming out of Iran, coming out of the United States? You really don't have to worry about all that because you just need to look for Christ. Especially if you hold to a pre-trib rapture because then you hold to the imminence of Christ's return. That is, he could come at any moment. And we need to be looking for him to come at any moment. Whether things in the world look like that's the case or don't look like the case. All right, next question says this, uh, and it's, I'm going to mention it because it ties in right with what the previous question was. It says, uh, Pastor Hughes, uh, just some brief comments on current events, U.S., Israel, eschatology. Well, I just made some of those. I gave a history of Israel earlier. Uh, all I can say about the U.S. is what you already know, and that is we're not on very good terms with Israel right now, right? I mean, that's... That's stating the obvious. Uh, when uh, Benjamin Netanyahu comes over here to give a speech, invited by some members of Congress, but not all, and then uh, the top leadership, our president and our vice president, and all of these others won't attend the speech. So uh, obviously there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of strain. Uh, probably worse U.S.-Israeli relations than there has been in recent memory. Uh, but again, is it... Is it okay to look at these things and, and, and consider them? Absolutely. There's no, value, there's no virtue in being ignorant or unaware of what's going on in the world. But don't get so caught up in that that you forget, again, that we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, next question says this. Uh, we're in the book of Revelation. Turn to chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And verse 17 says this. This is when John is being shown the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the capital city of the new heaven, the new earth. And uh, he, he's talking about the city. And he says in verse 16, the city, uh, or, or back up to verse 15, and he, he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So 12,000 furlongs, uh, this is about 1,400 square, not square miles, miles cubed because the verse says breadth, uh, length is great as its breadth, and then it goes on to say length, breadth, and height are equal. So we're not merely talking about square miles, we're talking about cubed miles. To give you an idea of the size of this capital city, 1,400 miles cubed. The city of London, I believe, is about 140 square miles. This is 1,400 miles cubed. Verse 17, then he measured its wall, 144 cubits. Now here's the question. According to the measure of a man, that is of an angel. And the question is this. Pastor Brian, Revelation 21, 17 says this in our English translations. ESV, also an angel's measurement. New King James Version, that is of an angel. NASB, also angelic measurements. What does this mean? I'll tell you what it means very simply. Don't spiritualize this. It's saying it doesn't matter if a man is measuring it or an angel is measuring it. 144 cubits is 144 cubits. And I love this statement because so many people destroy the book of Revelation by spiritualizing it. By rather than taking what it says, if it says that this city has 12 gates, three on the north, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west, guess what? It has 12 gates with three on the north, three on the south, three on the east, and three on the west. Don't jump off into allegorizing and making this thing stand on all fours, which is exactly what so many Christians do with not only this section of Revelation, but the whole thing. 
They just absolutely destroy it. So I love this statement because it's a way, uh, God had to throw that one in for the spiritualizers. He says, listen, it's the measurement of an angel or a man. Doesn't matter how you say it, it's the measurement. A measurement's a measurement. Doesn't matter if an angel does it or a man does it. And so just don't allegorize it and spiritualize it. Take it for what it's saying. And this is an interesting topic to me because for Montana Bible College, I'm teaching this semester uh, eschatology. We just finished it. And it's a great class. I love the students in there. And the students are quite diverse. Not everybody's of the same theological position. But uh, some in there in the discussion, the questions are, it's obvious they're wanting to spiritualize and allegorize. And so I keep coming back to this verse and saying, look, look, it doesn't matter if it's an angel or a man. Don't allegorize it. Don't spiritualize it. If you don't take it for what it's saying, for example, if you back up one chapter and God says seven times in verses four through six, or no, four through seven, if God says seven times that the kingdom is going to last 1,000 years, how long is it going to last? 1,000 years. You don't have to be very smart to get that. And God repeated seven times so we wouldn't miss it. And yet, shockingly, some Christians go to that and they say a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. We're in the kingdom now, so it's at least 2,000 years. Oh, okay. So now 1,000 means 2,000. Now what does anything else mean? You know, if, if 1,000 means 2,000, then when the, the book of Revelation talks about the second half of the tribulation, tribulation being 42 months because the whole thing is seven years, 42 months doesn't mean 42 months. And 1,260 days doesn't mean 1,260 days. And a time times and half a time doesn't mean a time times and half a time. You've just thrown out any semblance of any sanity when you do that to the book of Revelation. But the sad reality is is more Christians do that to the book of Revelation than than do take it at what it says. And Revelation 21.17 is a good reminder from God, don't spiritualize it. doesn't matter if it's an angel or a man. All right, from Revelation back to Hosea. Hosea, all the way back to Hosea. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, chapter 2. Hosea, chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Bring charges against your mother. Bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with, the, with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are the children of harlotry. And the question is this, verse 5, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who gave gave me my bread and my water, my, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. And the question is this, in Hosea 2, 2 through 5, the terms mother and children are used and both seem to refer to Israel. Are they to be seen as the same? If not, what is the difference? Great observation. And yes, they are the same. It's just that Israel here as the mother is viewed as the nation as a whole and then the children are the descendants of the nation. So God is taking issue with Israel, the nation, as an entity, but also specifically with the descendants. And so you're right. The terms mother and children are used. Both are referring to Israel, but one to the nation as a whole and the other to the descendants in the nation. But it's referring to the same group of people. All right, next question says this. This is coming off of this morning's uh, message that prompted someone to ask this question. Uh, I haven't noticed anything 
about infants being innocent in the book of John. This person's doing a study on the Gospel of John. I haven't noticed anything about infants being innocent in the Gospel of John. Please elaborate. Well, you're right, and you won't find it there, but neither will you find anything in the Gospel of John about repentance. The the word repentance. So are we going to suggest repentance is not a part of the Gospel? By the way, there are some who actually try to suggest that. There are those who are in the theological camp known as anti-lordship salvation who say that, that repentance is not a part of the gospel. And the reason they say it is because they say that it's not in John. So therefore, so you've got to be careful of, about arguing from silence, saying, well, I, you know, I hear what you're saying about the innocence in these other passages, but it's not in John. You're right. And there are a lot of things not in John. But they are elsewhere in Scripture. So just because it's not in John doesn't mean that it's not a valid biblical idea. All right, next question. I, don't, I, I know the person was serious, but it's just sort of, I, I can understand their frustration. At, at least it reads to me as if they're frustrated. They say this, why did God choose the Jewish people? They worshiped idols, they reject God's salvation, and they are stiff-necked. <laughs> well, that's right. That's exactly true. And you know why God chose the Jewish people? Two words, sovereign grace. He didn't choose them because they deserved it. He chose them by his sovereign grace. He chose them to be the vehicles through whom the Messiah came and through whom the word of God came. And so we are indebted to the Jewish people because they gave us scripture. Every book in the Bible, with the possible exception and only possible of Luke and Acts, and only possible exception, not definite, every other book in the Bible was written by a Jewish person. God used the Jewish people to give us scripture. God used the Jewish people to give us the Messiah. Uh, but it was his sovereign grace. And in fact, the story of the Old Testament should be very clear. God chose them. They didn't deserve it, but God is committed to them regardless, and that is God's grace, just like his grace in our lives. All right, next question says this. Uh, what uh, is the, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11 for this one. And uh, the question is, what is the biblical basis for doing communion as the way we do it? The only place I see in the Gospels is that it could be a command to repeat is Luke twenty two nineteen and following. And that really doesn't seem to institute what we do today. Besides, wouldn't it be Passover we should be celebrating? If anything, according to the t- to text. Honestly, foot washing seems to be more, more biblical to me. What am I missing? Well, you're missing 1 Corinthians 11. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gives to the church at Corinth instructions about the Lord's table. And this is to a largely, almost primarily Gentile church, which shows us that the issue isn't Passover. Passover was an institution, a celebration for the Jewish people, and it was during Passover that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. But you shouldn't confine it to the Gospels and say, well, it's, you know, it's really nowhere else because it's in 1 Corinthians 11, and so important that Paul says that he received this instruction about the Lord's table by direct revelation from Jesus Christ. That's how important it is for the church. Now, when you say the way we are doing it, I don't know if you mean like with little cups and, you know, wafers or all that. Then That's not biblical, obviously. There's a, you can do it with a big loaf of bread if you want to do it. Tear off pieces. You can do it with wine. You can do it with grape juice. You can do it a lot of different ways. But, but you seem to be actually questioning if it should even be done. And it should be done, 1 Corinthians 11. And you say, foot washing seems more biblical to me. No, because in John 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he said, do as I have done to you, not what I have done. That is, do as I have done. That is, be a servant. And it's interesting then in the book of Acts, where you do see the church gathering and practicing baptism and the Lord's Supper, you don't see foot washing. So they got it. They understood foot washing is not one of the ordinances. Baptism is, the Lord's table is, 
Foot washing is not. All right, last question for the night. Uh, we don't have to turn to it. We're all familiar with it. Uh, it is the question, why did Jesus get baptized? Because he's perfect. So why then did he get baptized? Let's look. Let's go back to end in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 3. Uh, Matthew chapter 3. This is when Jesus was baptized, and as you know from the story, John the Baptist was very uncomfortable doing this. He tried to prevent Jesus, and any sane person would. They would say, what? I can't baptize you, Lord. It's understandable that John was uncomfortable with this. And in verse 15 of Matthew 3, but Jesus answered and said to him, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness then he allowed him. So Jesus convinced John of the appropriateness of his baptism. He said it would fulfill all righteousness. What did Jesus mean by that statement? In answer to your question, the person that turned it in. To answer that, you have to ask yourself this question. How did Jesus fulfill the righteousness of God? Well, he fulfilled the righteousness of God by living a perfect sinless life, dying on the cross to pray, pay for the sins of sinners. That's why he became a man. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For him to be able to save sinners, he had to become fully and truly human. Hebrews 2.14 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That verse is saying that for Jesus to be able to save us, he had to become like us. He had to become a man, truly and fully human. So Jesus was baptized to identify with humanity. He was baptized to show that he was truly and fully human. He identified himself with sinners. He wasn't sinful, but he was human. And he was baptized to symbolize the fact that one day he would die for the sins of sinners and he would be resurrected to newness of life. It's interesting that in Luke 12, 50, he, Jesus spoke of his death as a baptism which he must undergo. In Mark 10, 38, he referred to his death as a baptism. So in answer to your question, Jesus was baptized to symbolize the fact that one day he would die, just being placed back into the water symbolized that, and then he would then be resurrected to newness of life. It's a perfect picture. He identified with humanity. He identified with sinners, and thus he fulfilled all righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a wonderful Lord's Day, a beautiful Lord's Day weather-wise and a great a uh, great day to come together with your people this morning and tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to lose ourselves in worship and to sing to you. Thank you for the opportunity to be instructed and challenged, informed by your word. Thank you for uh, the opportunity just to interact over these questions in a, a diversity, a quite a, a variety. And Father, I pray that uh, hopefully that some of the comments made have been helpful just to help the person grapple through whatever he or she was wrestling with uh, in, re in relation to your word. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.